With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino. With cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hi, everybody. Welcome to your own book show. We are um, broadcasting today, or I'm broadcasting today from uh, Buenos Aires, uh, Argentina, where the Iron Institute has been holding, uh, held a two-day conference, uh, Friday and Saturday, primarily for students, but... Uh, but uh, we had a lot of adults as well. It was fantastic. I mean, there were well over, well over 200 people there for both days. I thought, okay, a lot of people came the first day. I thought we'd see a fall off on the second day. But the fact is we had, we had uh, well over 200 people both days. It was really fantastic. There was so much energy and excitement in the room. It, it truly was a lot of fun. Uh, Maria Marti, who is uh, kind of heading up uh, Ayn Rand Center in Latin America and working with the Institute on getting uh, on getting all this uh, all this going is uh, did a fantastic job and uh, so congratulations to uh, to Maria on uh, on pulling this off it's not easy to pull off a conference so uh, yeah we had uh, Keith Lockage Ben Bear Anka Gate. Uh, and Taltzfani and myself all speaking uh, here in um, in Buenos Aires. The theme was individualism versus collectivism, but a lot of it was just introductory content on objectivism. Although we had a, 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 a you know a couple of panels as well. One of the panels was me and Anka and uh, versus a couple of kind of conservatives, religious. I don't know if conservatives, religious libertarians, if you will. That was kind of interesting. Uh, talking about uh, religion and God and whether you could have freedom and, and religion and whether they were compatible and uh, the authoritarian nature of religion. So uh, all of that was good. I'm hoping uh, everything was videotaped. Everything was videotaped. So I'm hoping uh, we'll be able to release videotapes of everything uh, over time and, uh, and you guys will, will be, able to, uh, be able to experience that. I'm heading... Um, I'm heading to uh, Santiago, Chile uh, tomorrow, uh, and I'll be doing uh, a series of events in Santiago uh, over, the next, uh, over the next few days. Then from Santiago, I'll be heading to Sao Paulo, Brazil, where we'll do, uh, again, I'll meet up with the guys from the Anran Institute. We'll do a series of events in, uh, in Sao Paulo. Then from there we go to uh, Porto Alegre, Brazil, and we'll be doing another two-day conference on um, on objectivism in um, in Porto Alegre. So uh, uh, you know, a week, uh, really eight nine days of objectivist activity in South America. It's 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 quite exciting, and uh, hell, the the the, the um, people here need it. Uh, Argentina is a complete and utter mess. It's, it's really a disaster economically. Uh, it looks like uh, the left, the leftist candidates who ruled Argentina until about four years ago are going to be winning power again uh, after the election next week because of the complete and utter incompetence of the so-called free market guy who turned out to be almost as much of a socialist as a socialist. So the, the, the choices here in Argentina are, are pretty pathetic and it looks like we're going to see uh, another kind of leftist, a return to the leftist presidencies of, of the past um, in, uh, in Argentina. Uh, Brazil is running this interesting experiment, so we'll, we'll you know, with Bolsonaro and, and really a free market 
economics minister and free market, a lot of ministers in the government who are very free market. Uh, it'll be interesting to be in Brazil and talk to Brazilians about what is going on in Brazil and to what extent they are optimistic about the outcome. And of course, Chile. Chile is this amazing place that has been running an experiment for the last 30 years. You would think that every other Latin American country would look to Chile and try to mimic it. And of course they don't, which is quite shocking because Chile used to be the poorest country in Latin America on a cap per capita GDP basis. Today, Chile is the richest country in Latin America on a per capita GDP basis. And all the consequence of the fact that during the 1980s and 1990s, and to this day, they have massively reformed their economy and they have brought about you know, free market policies. Now, not as far as I would like them to go, not as far as I think they need to go in order to sustain this long term, but far better than any other country in Latin America. And as a consequence, they become the richest country in Latin America on a per capita basis. So it is truly, it is truly, uh, um, you know, stunning and, and proof again that what is needed in the world are not more examples. What is needed in the world is not more, you know, things to point at. What is needed in the world is a fundamental philosophical shift in terms of how people, you know, and how people view, um, in how people view morality and how people view capitalism because the examples are there, the examples are all over the place, the examples are everywhere you look uh, uh, to the success of, of freeing up markets and, and, and uh, you know, putting in place policies that are consistent with capitalism even a little bit and the consequence, the consequence are, are amazing and, and, uh, and yet nobody pays attention, nobody cares. Uh, Chile is very close to Argentina, Chile is very close to all of Latin America, and yet nobody has learned the lesson from Chile. They make excuses about about that as uh, why why uh, it is uh, it is impossible to implement in their own country. When of course it, it is not. It's quite possible, uh, and you know. So it, it, it's it's quite illustrative of the fact that what is needed in the world today is not better understanding of economics. What is needed in the world today is not more examples of the success, the relative success of capitalism. What is needed in the world today is a moral revolution, a, a shift in our attitudes towards morality, uh, a shift that embraces self-interest, that embraces uh, egoism, that embraces the, the only moral code that is consistent with capitalism. As long as the world and this is a big theme of what I talked about at the conference. As long as the world stays with a morality or, or, or maintains a morality of altruism, we will keep going back and experimenting with socialism. We will keep trying it again because if altruism is truly the, the, the right morality, right? if altruism is the standard, then socialism is the only moral system. And if socialism is the only moral system, then you need to keep trying to figure it out, to, to get it right. The, the fact that it, we haven't gotten it right in the past is, uh, is a black mark against us. But if it's, if it's moral, then we have to keep doing it. We have to keep trying it. We have to keep going until we get it right. And that's the problem. The problem is the, dominant of the, the dominance of the morality of altruism. And of course, the morality of altruism, the primary advocate of the morality of altruism is religion. It's primarily Christianity and religion more broadly. And therefore the real enemy of capitalism is not just is, is, is religion and particularly the moral system, the, 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 uh, the altruism, the altruism that dominates uh, the dominant religion. And, and until altruism is eviscerated, we will keep going back to experiment with socialism. You see that all over, all over Latin America today. So uh, very pessimistic about Argentina in the short term, excited about Argentina in the long run, given, given the interest in objectivism, given the interest in Ayn Rand's ideas that we saw over the weekend. So I'm hoping this is the beginning of a movement. This is the beginning of, of, of a lot more. I mean, this was two days of, um, 
significant intellectual lectures of significant intellectual work and people sat there and talked and discussed and um, you know and it was pretty amazing so uh, very very inspiring to see and I expect that we'll see in um, in uh, Brazil as large if not a larger audience uh, you know we've been going to Brazil for longer there's uh, there's uh, there's great interest in Brazil. They have been for there has been for a very long time, and I expect we'll see significant interest uh, in Brazil and significant progress in Brazil. So uh, Latin America, you know, objectivism is here. We now have a, a, a Latin America a center for objectivism in Latin America, both on the both on the uh, you know Spanish side and on the Portuguese side, on the Brazilian side. So I think we've we've got Latin America covered. I'm excited in the future. I expect we'll go to places like Panama, Guatemala, Colombia, Ecuador, and places like that. So uh, we're, we're going to cover the entire the entire continent. All right. What I thought we'd do today, since we haven't done a show in a long time, I've been on vacation and. Internet hasn't been good, but primarily I've just been on vacation. So I think this is the longest I've gone without doing a show, a live show, forever, forever, as far as I can tell. So, uh, uh, you know, I apologize for not having a live show for so long, but, you know, vacations are good. I had a fantastic vacation in Spain and Portugal, uh, drove about 2,000 miles, uh, you know, so it was a road trip my wife and I took. Uh, ate at uh, lots of really good restaurants. I think, I think overall in the two and a half weeks we did 19 Michelin stars, um, three three star restaurants, three two star restaurants, and the rest one star restaurants. So uh, ate some really good food. Uh, saw some beautiful sights, beautiful beaches, beautiful mountains, uh, amazing people, amazing villages and towns, and and uh, and I was I was particularly impressed. With um, with uh, the uh, with Portugal, I'd never been to Portugal, and that was fun. All right, so I thought we'd do like a, a news briefing today. We'll go over. I'm just going to go over Google News and go over the headlines and, and give you commentary on that. I do have a couple of super chat questions here. An objectivist view of the movie Goodfellas. I mean, it's a it's a good movie. It, it, I think it's it's I think it's pretty well made. Um, Thematically, it's it's more about the, the the consequences of 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 being a bad guy of of evil. What happens to you? Uh, I but I also you know it's on objectivist perspective. It's my perspective. I also would say this that I haven't seen the movie in a long time. So next time I see it, I'll give you some commentary on it then. But generally, gangster movies, I like I, you know The Godfather. I think is very good. It's very well made. But of course. The theme of it is is the negative. It's the consequence of immorality, the, 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 what happens to your soul and to your life as a consequence of engaging in immorality. And that, and you see that in um, in The Godfather. You see that in Goodfellas. Uh, you see that in in really any good. You see that in Breaking Bad. You see that in any good movie that describes evil. Then it doesn't romanticize and doesn't doesn't. Uh, uh, Relish evil, but but shows it for what it is, and shows it for <coughs> the consequences it has on human life. Okay, another one, another uh, uh, super chat question: Is it moral to be a spy for a moral cause, even if that means that you have to lie and deceive? Yes. So uh, spying, uh, you know, as a intelligence uh, at a time of uh, of war, let's say, or against a, a true adversary. Is is a moral activity. You're, you're defending. Uh, you're defending freedom. You're defending uh, your values. So it has to be for moral cause, and it has to be against an enemy. The problem is today that everybody spies against everybody. So the United States spies against its own allies. That I think is immoral. I don't think one would spy against one's own uh, allies. And uh, so I think spying, the whole area of spying, the whole area of, of accumulating intelligence and and using deception, <coughs> one has to be careful on how, and has to really think about how that is categorized and against who the spying is being implemented. And I think there's way too much spying going on today in the world. Uh, and it's not, much of it is not focused on self-defense. Much of it is not focused on self-interest. 
and much of it is not focused on the real enemies. So I, I think somebody would have to really give it some thought. I haven't given thought to the area, but you'd have to give thought to what extent who you spy on and to what extent you spy on and how you spy on them. But certainly to be a spy against an enemy is not an immoral thing, even though it involves deception and lying. But deception and lying with regard to evil in the face of evil is not a bad thing. It is a good thing. Okay, Alex says, just spent 10 days in Japan. Was sad to see how economically slumped it looked and felt. Do countries that... With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Clean heavily, heavily, heavily identify with their past. Greece, Egypt, pay a price for it in the modern world. Yes, uh, well... Not in the modern world, they, they pay a price for it in terms of economic growth. So Japan's, Japan's, uh, the fact that it's insular, the fact that it has no immigration, the fact that it is very, very, um, you know, xenophobic and, and to some extent racist in terms of focus on the Japan is superior to all else. That inhibits economic growth, it inhibits new ideas, and, and also what it does is, is the culture inculcates collectivistic values in its people to be Japanese, to be a part of Japan, that is everything, that is all, rather than a focus on, on the individual and on the value of individual, individual thought and individual, individual success and individual, um, individual thriving. And as a consequence of that, what happens is that you you instill a certain mentality in the people, and the mentality is an anti-entrepreneurial, anti-productive, uh, anti-innovative. Uh, so, unfortunately, now I think it's changing a little bit in Japan. There's certainly more entrepreneurial entrepreneurship, but but the entrepreneurs there've been few entrepreneurs. They've grown very big, like Honda. And, whoever started Toyota and, and uh, Toyota and Sony and so on. But there's not constant flow of entrepreneurship. And I think that's changing. I think Japan is getting better. But, and and they're, they're starting to open up their borders and, and other things. But there really is, there really is, uh, uh, I think, the collectivism in Japan that is involved in the past and is involved in viewing the Japanese people as, as special, that that inhibits economic growth. It, 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 is, it definitely is a force of stagnation, a force of stagnation. Collectivism stagnates. Nationalism in its collectivistic form, which is the dominant form, stagnates, stagnates. Hey, Brian, thank you for the support. That is fantastic. I think that's the biggest, um, th that's the most generous uh, super chat uh, contribution I've ever received. So I really, really appreciate that. Thank you. Thank you. Um, you know, so it's, it's, uh, it's sad to see a country like Japan with, with the level of potential productivity that they have, with the smart that they are and, and the success that they've had. Think about the success they had from the 50s through the 1980s stagnate for 30 years and, and, but it is a consequence, and, and to the extent that some of some people want to make America into a nationalistic, collectivistic, xenophobic, uh, closed-off, walled, uh, anti-trade place, to the extent to the extent that you have that that people in America want to do that, to that extent, America is going to stagnate, and you're already seeing stagnation in America for a variety of reasons, including primarily the, the bad economic policy, Federal Reserve and others. Um, is it moral to buy a carpet from Iran considering child labor? I, I don't know how much child labor there is in Iran, but I, you know, I am not opposed to child labor. I think child labor in countries that are poor, in countries where the children have no other option, 
uh, is is a is is a positive, not a negative. It, it's something that is the, the alternative is much worse for those children than to work. So if you don't buy the carpet, then those children lose their job, and then what? They either have to go to the back to the farm where the labor is much harder and much nastier, or they die die of starvation. Now I don't know if that's true in Iran. I would say I don't buy anything from Iran because I consider Iran a country dedicated to the destruction of Western civilization, and that is funding terrorism and is building weapons and it, it is it, that is geared towards destroying the values that I care about. So I don't buy anything from Iran because of that not because of child labor. I don't take into account the issues of child labor because I think child labor, again, is beneficial to the children as long as they're not, you know, forced to do it, you know, uh, forced to do it uh, through coercion, through, uh, through a, you know, brutal regime that rounds up kids and sends them to labor camps. If it's the best choice that they have, that is to work in a factory, then it's the best job option that they have, and you're supporting the best option by buying the thing. So it's exactly, I would say, it's exactly the opposite. Um, child labor in places like Indonesia, Malaysia, in the past China, uh, Vietnam, places like that have helped raise children out of poverty and helped raise those the, the individuals in those society out of very, very bad circumstances and improved life. Thank you. I mean, it's support like that that makes this show possible. Uh, and uh, thank, uh, thank all of you for, uh, uh, for those who support the show. Thank you for supporting the show. What you your support makes what I do possible. And uh, once I'm back in Puerto Rico, which is there are going to be a lot of shows, unfortunately, between now and uh, and late September because I'm just I'm traveling. One thing should know here. Most of you might know about this already. Next week. Not this coming week, the week after that, the middle of September, I will be doing faith. It's capitalism versus socialism. I uh, all of those I assume uh, I assume will all be videotaped. I'm hoping some of them will be live streamed. But I'm doing three debates: capitalism versus socialism on on the uh, on the uh, Tuesday at the University of Maryland. So hopefully, if you live, you can come. Uh, the, the the one on Wednesday. We the University of Texas in Austin, and the one on the Thursday is going to be at the University of Colorado, Denver, and I'm hoping that a lot of people who live in Colorado in the Denver area will be able to show up, will be able to support me and support the, the ideas at the event. All three debates, it's going to be interesting, because all three debates are going to be against the same guy, and uh, so we're trying to together to all these places, and here's a real socialist. He's just written a book called The Socialist Manifesto. So um, I'm, I'm, oops, technical problems, you say? So I'm hoping that, um, I'm hoping that, uh, I'm hoping that we get a, uh, a great attendance, great audiences, we get a lot of, a uh, lot of students, and uh, it's going to be, it's going to be very interesting to see the, uh, the interaction and how the debates develop over time. So having taken any problems, you know, I'm, I'm dependent very much here on the bandwidth that the hotel provides me. Now it is Ethernet, it's cable, so it should be stable. But, you know, at the end of the day, uh, you know, I'm dependent on what, uh, what they provide. Um. <laughs> All right, it says it's better now. Um, let's see, what else? Okay, I was going to do the news, so let's do the news. Let's go over the news here and, uh, and cover that. Um, and, uh, uh, but it should be, it should be really, it should be really, the debate should be really good. So, uh, and, and so I'm hoping many of you who might live in those areas, um, Join. Is the microphone not good? I mean, the sound usually when I'm traveling, the sound on this microphone, it, it, this is about as good as a microphone as you can get. By the way, even the microphone I use at home, I know the sound is supposed to be not that good. Is a really expensive, high-quality microphone. So I don't think it's the microphones. I think it's the settings that the microphone um, that the microphone is is uh, at home. The settings and and the room acoustics. Uh, 
but the settings, the, the microphones, the problem is not the quality and the expense of the microphone. The microphones are, all the microphones I use are expensive microphones. Okay, um, let's go over the news. So, so top of the news is the fact that this the meeting between uh, Trump and the Taliban has, uh, has uh, been canceled, the Trump canceled the secret Camp David meeting. So they were gonna fly the Taliban leadership, these, these negotiators into, into the United States to come to Camp David and negotiate a peace deal with Donald Trump. Now, you know, I've said this before, I'll say it again, you do not negotiate with evil. You do not negotiate with evil, that is a principle. You don't negotiate with North Korea, you don't negotiate with Iran, you don't negotiate with the Taliban. What do you have to gain from negotiating with the Taliban? Nothing. If we want to leave Afghanistan, then leave Afghanistan. Pack up and leave. All negotiating with the Taliban and signing a peace agreement with the Taliban does is legitimizes the Taliban. And all it will do is embolden them to take over Afghanistan, which they're going to do anyway. Because we haven't thoroughly and systematically destroyed the Taliban, which is what we should have done after 9-11, I mean thoroughly demolished them, used the full capacity of the, of the, of the U.S. military to, to crush them. Since we haven't done that, then they are as strong as ever. They have gained strength. They are still the same philosophically as they always have been. They have the same Islamist ideology. And they will take over Afghanistan, whether you sign a peace deal or doesn't. What, what does a peace deal mean to evil people? What does signing a document mean to somebody who's evil? Somebody who's evil doesn't care about signed documents. They have no respect for signed documents. They have no meaning to peace agreements. It, it, it was the same with Yasser Arafat, that Israel should have never signed a deal with him. It only emboldened him to become even a, a, a worse terrorist and emboldened them to attack Israel even more, which is what the second intifada was in Israel in, in the early 2000s. Uh, it didn't help. You remember Kissinger won a Nobel Peace Prize. He won a Nobel Peace Prize for negotiating a peace between South Vietnam and North Vietnam. And what happened? Six months after he got the Peace Prize, North Vietnam invaded South Vietnam, ignored the peace deal, you know, basically ripped up the agreement, invaded South Vietnam, took them over and established communism over the whole Vietnam Peninsula. You cannot, there's no point in, there's no value in negotiating with evil. But yet, people try it over and over and over again throughout history. Yet every single time, it's useless. So, I'm not surprised Donald Trump is doing this. He is the ultimate pragmatist. He's a complete pragmatist, doesn't believe in principle. He thrives on dealing with evil. Look at his attitude towards the murderous dictator of North Korea and his best friend and loving relationship. Um, and, and, you know, so I'm not surprised that he negotiated with the Taliban. But to me, it's a negotiating with the Taliban is a complete and utter, unequivocal betrayal, betrayal of America. It's not America first, it's America in the trash can, it's America last. So, uh, and, and he wants to negotiate with Iran. He's offered the Iran to negotiate, to negotiate and the Iranians won't, won't come. Uh, but, but the idea of negotiating with people who don't give a damn about whether they hold on to their treaties, whether they, their word is worth anything because they are evil people, it's just ludicrous. You don't negotiate with mass murderers. You don't negotiate with serial killers. You don't negotiate with a thug around the street. You don't negotiate with bullies. You crush them or you walk away. But you don't negotiate. So it's just more of the same kind of pragmatism from the Trump administration. Okay, we got a couple of more uh, Super Chat questions. Is there anything to be concerned about today's popularity of post-apocalyptic films and TV shows? No, I don't think so. I, I mean, ultimately, post-apocalyptic films have been popular forever. I mean, I, I remember there were so many post-apocalyptic uh, movies and, and movies primarily in in the 70s and 80s and 90s. So I don't think there's anything new. Uh, so I, I don't think it's a new phenomena. I, I, particularly, I'd say things are much better today. Most of There was a lot of post-apocalyptic feelings or... or ideas that, that emanated from the from the Cold War, the idea that we were going to 
Soviet Union and the United States were going to blow each other up and there was going to be a, that was going to be the source of the apocalypse. I think the difference is that now a lot of the source of the apocalypse is environmentalism, is climate change, is all that nonsense. Uh, and, it, and it makes sense that there would be a lot of movies about that because that is in the culture, it's, it's in the world. Um, should we be concerned about the fact that people are obsessing about all these things that they believe falsely are going to destroy the world? Yeah, but, but the problem is climate change or the, uh, uh, the hysteria about climate change. The problem is the hysteria about environmental issues. The problem is the hysteria, I think, about now the potential war between China and America. I think these... Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. These hysterias or even hysteria about Islam, that Islam is going to end the world. I think there's a lot of hysteria about the world ending. Uh, as I've said over and over and over again, Western civilization is in decline, but Western civilization is in decline not because of China, not because of Islam. Western civilization is in decline because of the West, because we've abandoned the ideas of the West. You know, we've abandoned individualism, we've abandoned reason, we're embracing collectivism, we're embracing mysticism, and as we embrace those ideas, we will decline. Brandon asked, is a recession triggered by Fed raising rates better than a recession that would be caused by trade or other factors that would increase the bubble? No, I, I don't think you can say some recessions are better based on what triggers them. Recessions are going to be determined by how deep they are, and some of that is going to depend on Fed behavior. So a lot of how deep a recession is, how long a recession is, how quickly we recover from a session, how we recover, the nature of the recovery, the extent of the recovery. Uh, to a large extent, all of that is determined by uh, the Fed behavior. So, um, you know, part of the reason that, that the Great Recession was as deep and as nasty as it was was because the Fed miscalculated, completely screwed up, it completely messed up. Now, I've often said I don't think they have a choice. They, they almost always screw up and, and because they... they there's no market for them to, to be able to tell what to do. Uh, but they particularly screwed up at the Great Recession. Paul, uh, you know, uh, Bernanke will be remembered ultimately as a bad chairman of the Federal Reserve, not as the hero he wants us to believe he is. And uh, the Great Depression was caused to a large extent. So a recession that was caused by trade, a recession that was caused by trade and by a slowdown in, um, in production and consumption, uh, ultimately turned into Great depression because of the Fed, because not the Fed raised interest rates, but it, it contracted the money supply by other means. So the Fed has various means in which it contracts the supply of money. And when it does that into a recession, like it did in the Great Recession and it did in, uh, in the Great Depression, uh, you get worse recessions that need to be. So the, the, the Fed... Now, of course, the real problem is that by the Fed's very existence and by it raising, lowering interest rates, expanding the money supply, shrinking the money supply, and so on, it's constantly distorting the market and creating, creating bubbles, but creating malinvestment, creating investment in things that shouldn't be invested in, jobs where there shouldn't be jobs, no jobs where there should be jobs. It distorts the entire economy and it makes it very difficult for rational people to actually plan for the future and to, to, to invest and to, to produce for the future. And I think... I think ultimately where the United States economically is heading, it's really economically the United States is heading towards kind of stagnation. I, I don't see us heading towards a massive cliff and, and complete destruction. I see us much more as, as heading towards kind of a Japan outcome where we're just flat and just stagnating and very little is happening and that creates social unrest and more authoritarianism and political, political mayhem. So uh, to me, that is the great, the great risk is, uh, is the real stagnation that is about, wow, I have a troll on this who's just on, on YouTube who just 
isn't stopping. Oh, well, good for you. Uh, let's see. What do you say about Richard Wolff's claim that private enterprise destroyed commercial fishing by overfishing in the ocean, depleting fish populations because of profit motive? I mean, he's right in a sense, right? I don't think it's private enterprise, but he's right that uh, when uh, if you don't if you don't think carefully about how to do fishing, if you don't figure out how to establish property rights over fishing, that is expand the scope of property rights, expand the scope of um, of private enterprise in the sense of defining property into the oceans, then you do run a, a real risk of overfishing, and, and it is true. In, um, in many areas, uh, we have seen a significant overfishing um, because if the fish are not mine, and uh, you know, if everybody can fish in this location, I have an incentive to gather up as much fish as I can because any fish that I don't gather up, my competitor is going to gather up, and it's very difficult to, to, to establish any kind of standard by which we, you know, we leave the fisheries, we, we, we think long-term because, you know, who does the long-term thinking? If, if I'm trying to do long-term thinking, well, my competitor is going to be short-term and he's going to gather up all the fish. So the only way, the only way to fix that ultimately is through figuring out a mechanism of private property. Uh, some kind of private property mechanism that defines defines uh, private property over fish, and it's not easy to do. And I'm I, I'm not claiming I have the answer to how to do it. But if you if you do a little bit of research online, you can find that Iceland and I think Norway have both figured out ways in which to maintain a free market in in fish. That is to to let commercial fishermen go out and fish. But not through quotas, but through a mechanism of property rights um, over fish, over fisheries, over fish areas, um, to get people to think long term and therefore not to overfish and therefore to invest in the future and make sure that and the fish stock in those places has increased dramatically. And you can see that everywhere. You can see that that um, if you establish private property over wild animals. Um, wild animals that people value, then those wild animals don't go extinct. So the way the way to uh, the way to solve the problem of the extinction of elephants is to privatize the elephants. And now they're my elephants. And if the elephant have value, for example, for hunting, then I have an interest in maintaining the stock of elephants so that there's a certain percentage of them that can be hunted. Uh, you know, every year. The same with lions. The same with with other animals. And and those experiments are being done today in Africa and places like Kenya and Uganda and I think in Tanzania, primarily in Kenya. And, um, but, and uh, the, the, the results are astounding in terms of uh, the growth in, um, in, in animals that people believed were going to be extinct not that long ago. Uh, it's not to criminalize all hunting, it's to privatize hunting. And if you privatize hunting prop and, and establish property rights properly, then you the, the, you have the right kind of incentives to maintain the stock. And the same is true of fishing. The same is true of whales. The same is true of all these things. You have to, but but in the oceans, you have to be very creative in terms of how you create property rights. And it's not obvious, and it's not easy. And I don't have the answers necessarily. But that is the solution. That's how you go about doing it. And um, and again in. In Norway and in Iceland, they have solved the problem of fisheries by doing it that way. All right, uh, some other stories in the news. Uh, the second thing that comes out on my on my feed is uh, that uh, Sanford, um, you know, the former governor of uh, South Carolina and a former congressman of South Carolina, it has announced that he is uh, challenging Trump uh, for president in the Republican Republican primaries. You know, I don't think anybody has a chance against Trump in the Republican primaries, but of all the people out there, I actually like Sanford. Uh, when he was governor of South Carolina, I, I, I thought he would make a good, good president. I, he's, a, he's a free market guy. He's a reasonable guy. Um, he seems like what, he's a relatively secular guy. He's not a religious fanatic. Um, he's not, he's pro-free trade. He's, 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 
I think I think uh, Sanford would make a decent president. Now he had this episode. I don't know if you, you guys remember, but he had this episode while he was governor that ultimately forced him not to run for president, where he fell in love uh, with this woman. Um, I think she was from Argentina, uh, but from South America. And while he was married, and he had he was having an affair with her, but he really fell in love with her. It wasn't just a, a, a and, and then but then she turned him down as well. So he landed up getting a divorce and not having the relationship with the with this new woman, and you know it destroyed his credibility. So he never ran for president. But if if he had run, um, I would have I would supported I would have supported him because I think he's one of the better Republicans out there. I certainly would support him today. I certainly would support him over Trump. And uh, you know, I, I wish him luck. I, I really I met actually met him at a conference uh, in April. Uh, he's an Ayn Rand fan. We, we, we had a, a long chat. We got to got to bump into each other a number of times and talk. He knows who I am. He knows he definitely knows who Rand is and his, his influence. And again, I, I think of all the people out there running for president, um, I I would be most supportive of, of Sanford. Now, you know, who knows? We'll see if I, I discover anything, anything uh, negative about him. But so far, so good. And so far, he is the guy that I would support. Uh, so I'm I'm really hoping that by the time we get to prime, one of the things the Republican Party is doing, I don't know if you've heard about this, uh, is in some states they're canceling primaries, they're canceling primaries, um, so that Trump will win, so that nobody will challenge Trump. I hope, I really hope that is reversed. I really hope we we get to a point where. Um, you know, where we actually have primaries. And I really hope there's a robust debate. We've got now three challenges to Trump. We've got Sanford, we've got the for, uh, Well, the former governor of uh, Massachusetts, and we've got uh, Walsh, uh, Joe Walsh, the radio talk show host. Of all of those, I would definitely support Sanford. I, it, the amazing thing about that is I personally know two of the candidates running against Trump within the Republican primary. I know Sanford and I know Walsh. Uh, I know Walsh probably best of all of them, but of all of them, I would primarily be a, a supporter of, of, uh, of Sanford. So, uh, yeah, I mean, I think, I think uh, I'm, I'm excited about the fact that there's gonna be a primary and there should be primaries and it's gonna be a challenge to Trump. And that some, some Republicans have the courage to actually stand up to him and say, you're not qualified to be president. You've proven that over the last three and a half years, or three years, sorry. Uh, another Super Chat question. I know you're not a scientist, but have you insight into whether the dangers of the Amazon forest fires is exaggerated? Uh, there's no question it's exaggerated. I'm not a scientist, but from everything I've read, uh, the forest fires in the Amazon are, are slightly, uh, slightly higher um, in terms of the number of fires than usual. It's not dramatically higher than usual. Uh, this is fire season in Brazil. There are hundreds or thousands of fires every year in Brazil around this time. Uh, it is part of the natural process. Uh, you know, new trees, uh, there's more trees on planet Earth today than probably ever before. The real issue with the Amazon is, is it, it seems to be that there's a destruction of, of virgin forest and some people have this uh, think that virgin forest is better than regular forest, but not from the perspective of oxygen, not the perspective of CO2. Uh, new forest and virgin forest, I don't think, have a big difference between the two. So no, I, 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 I doubt that there is any real danger to mankind from uh, the, the burning of the Amazon forest. Now, you could imagine much bigger fires, a complete destruction of the Amazon, would be problematic, but uh, there's no indication that that's happening or that that is going to happen or that that would be allowed to happen. So far, the fires in the Amazon are not more extreme than usual, than usual. Um, somebody says if Republicans were split the same way Bill Clinton, no, Bill Clinton was elected because there was the third party candidate. Here, there's no third-party candidate. They're running in the primaries, in the Republican primaries. And the goal is to defeat Donald Trump in the Republican primaries and to be the nominee for the Republican Party. So it would be a Democrat versus a Republican, one Republican 
But my hope, my, my real big hope, because I don't want to vote for a Democrat, my real hope is that Donald Trump is not the Republican candidate for presidency um, in, uh, in uh, 2020. That I, I hope that it's uh, one of these others, uh, particularly I hope that it's Sanford. Um, Bree asks, do you think the economic problems in China are due to the trade war or the resurgence of the authoritarian war? Well, I think it's due to three different things. Um, you know, the problems in China today, the economic problems in China today, I, I mean, have been going on for quite a long time. I mean, if you remember just a few years ago, China was still growing at a 9, 10, 11, 12% rate, and, and now it's gone down to 6, and, and it's going even below 6. I think the big change in China was that during the financial crisis, China did a massive stimulus, massive amount of government, uh, much more than the United States as a percentage of the economy. Government created credit and flooded the market with money and flooded the market with investments. And when the, mar when the government does that, those are bad investments. They, they uh, invested in the wrong things. They produced bad results. And as a consequence, you know, there's been massive malinvestment in, in China. And, um, and that, is, that has been the case since the, the financial crisis. Of course, it was the case before, but it's certainly been the case of financial crisis. So one, it is, it is basically the necessary economic outcome from all the bad investments that were made during the financial crisis to keep the Chinese economy afloat. And, and the fact that the banking system is, is not there's no kind of the, 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 the creative destruction uh, that economists talk about, the failing of bad businesses, the rise of good businesses, that, that is not allowed to completely function in a place like China. It's not allowed to function in Japan either. One of the reasons Japan has been stagnant for 30 years. So that's hurting China. Second, it's dramatic rise, I think, over the last three, four years with the rise of, of the latest uh, of Xi, Xi as the... As the head of the Chinese government, um, the rise of authoritarianism. So uh, the rise of authoritarianism has suppressed uh, private investment. It's suppressed uh, entrepreneurship. There's been a flight of capital out of China. Um, there's been an emphasis on growing state-owned businesses, which is, again, a form of malinvestment, bad investment. State-owned businesses have never been a source of economic growth for China in China. So it's suddenly... Um, it's certainly, uh, you know, part of, uh, uh, you know, it's certainly part of, uh, part of the issue is, uh, <laughs> uh, part of the issue is the rise of authoritarianism. And of course, the rise of authoritarianism, uh, it causes people to be less ambitious, causes people to think less and to, 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 uh, to, to be less entrepreneurial and rest, less risk-taking, uh, as the government grows. As authoritarianism grows, risk grows, and as risk grows, there's less investment. So you'd expect that. And then uh, third is is the trade. Uh, the trade war is having a, a detrimental effect on the on the Chinese economy, just like it's having a detrimental effect on the U.S. economy. So the U.S. economy is slowing. Uh, job creation in the U.S. is slowing. GDP growth is slowing. By every economic measure, the U.S. is slowing. And that is primarily, I think, caused by, uh, by the, the, you know, just basically stupidity of, of, this, uh, of this trade war, trade engagement, or whatever you want to call it. And that's having similar consequences in China. The whole, in a sense, it's having consequences, I think, throughout the entire world, because the United States doesn't just have tariff with, increased tariffs with China. The, you know, President Trump has increased tariffs with Canada, has increased tariffs with South Korea, with Japan. And with Europe, uh, increased tariffs on washing machines and, and uh, you know all kinds of tariffs, and all of that has created uncertainty. Again, less investment when you have increased uncertainty, but also has increased costs and disrupted global supply chains. So what, what what you're seeing a lot in the world right now is companies reorienting their supply chains, moving out of China and going to Vietnam, moving out of China and going to Thai, uh, Thailand, uh, you know maybe even moving out of South Korea and moving somewhere else. Because and, and, and Europe is, is going through the same kind of same kind of problems and the same kind of issues and, and they're not sure what kind of tariffs down the road they're going to see uh, from the United States. So the uncertainty Trump has created and the tariffs that he have imposed have created, I think, a global slowdown and a global restructuring of investment to change and, and uh, 
reorient the the supply chains uh, across across the you know the entire world, and that is incredibly destructive economically to the United States, to China, and to the rest of the world. All right, Ryan asks, what do you think about the inverted yield curve? Trump praising Germany's negative interest rates and wanting Fed uh, Fed rate cuts, economic consequences. Look, I I I, I think you know. Trump's an idiot when it comes to economics. I, I don't think it's worth giving second thought to anything Trump says about economics. I mean, praising negative interest rates. I mean, negative interest rates is a sign of a sickness. It's a sign of, of, of destructive economic policies. Negative interest rates make no economic sense in a healthy world. So the only reason they're sustained right now is because of how unhealthy the world is, how unhealthy the world economy is, and how bizarre and disastrous are the, the policies of the European Central Bank and the, and the U.S. Central Bank. Uh, so that, and the European Central Bank's ev you know, horrible economic policies are causing negative interest rates in places like Denmark and Switzerland and other places, even people, even countries that are not part of the, of the euro are experiencing negative interest rates because of the European Central Bank. Um, so, you know, to, to want to emulate that is ridiculous. The, the, the thing slowing down the U.S. economy is not high interest rates. The thing slowing down the U.S. economy is the uncertainty created by Trump, the uncertainty created by the trade war, the uncertainty created by Trump's incompetence, which might lead to a Democrat winning the election next year, which will undo all the, all the, the few good things that Trump has done would be undone by that. So, um, you know, it, it, it is generally his presidency, I believe, is, a, is, is, is becoming more and more of a disaster, and that disaster is manifesting itself in slower economic growth. And uh, you don't fix that just with the Fed. You fix that by, by changing your policies, by, by stopping this absurd uh, trade war, by lowering tariffs to zero. That's the best way to, to, to deal with trade is to lead by example, to lower trade, to lower barriers to zero, to stop subsidizing, to stop the cronyism, and at the same time to start slowing government spending. That's the other thing that's killing the U.S. economy is the amount of money that the government is sucking out of the private economy and spending, and again, creating bad investments. When the government spends money, it is destructive because it's investing in the wrong things. It's creating jobs in the wrong places. It's creating unproductive jobs, primarily in the government sector, and all of that is is going on under Trump. So, the whole issue of the slowdown in the U.S. economy is a direct consequence of government policies. Now, given all that, what should the Fed do? Well, it looks like the Fed has no choice right now but to lower short-term interest rates. I mean. The fact that the yield curve is inverted is an indication that the market is signaling to the Fed that they should reduce interest rates. And I think they're going to reduce interest rates. I don't think they have a choice. Basically, the bond market the, the bond market is telling them that, that interest rates are too high, short-term interest rates are too high, so I expect interest rates to come down. But all of this, all of this is, is a consequence of the, of the post-Great Great Recession uh, monetary policy that has been insane and, and ridiculous and has created false expectations of financial markets and the Obama and Trump presidencies that have that have embraced economic policies, Trump in one way and Obama in a different way, that have basically hurt the underlying health of the U.S. economy. And I think we will continue to grow at a very low rate, if at all, and, and continue to have real, real stagnation. Um, all right, uh, next super chat question. I guess I'm not gonna get the news that much. How should one go about teaching objectivism to their children? I think the best, the best way to, uh, to teach objectivism uh, to your children is by example. Uh, I don't think you teach objectivism until the kids are teenagers, and at that point, try to get them to read Fontenay and Atlas Shrugged, uh, take them to an objectivist conference, uh, sit down with them and talk about morality and talk about certain uh, principle. Um, so, um, you know, I don't think you as a parent should be 
formally teaching what you should be is is living it and emphasizing the objectivist virtues uh, kind of on a day-to-day -day, on a day-to-day -day basis you should be um, you know talking about honesty and talking about productiveness and you should be doing that from when they're very young but you should become more and more philosophical as they uh, uh, as they as they grow up and as they become teenagers and they become more um, more thinking, right? I mean, little kids can't think. So uh, they can't think conceptually. So as they become more conceptual, you introduce more conceptual values. Uh, John asked, do you have any thoughts about Trump reprivatizing Freddie and Fannie? <sighs> Oi, um, I haven't read the latest proposal, so I will talk about this in a show in the future once I've read the proposal in detail. But I, I, I don't think what Freddie and Fannie need is reprivatizing. What Freddie and Fannie need is to be shut down. They should be shut down and, and they should be recreated in the private market if there's a need for Freddie and Fannie in the private market. And I don't see why there is a need. I, I don't see why investment banks can't do whatever, what it is that Freddie and Fannie have done in the past if there's a real need for them, if there's an economic profit and economic value to their activities then private markets can do it. The problem with reprivatizing them is that they will continue to get, and I think Trump's plan has this, that they will continue to get uh, a government guarantee. And as long as they have a government guarantee, uh, they, they will take on too much risk. They will be involved in, in, in bad mortgages, uh, and, uh, and, and I think you'll have long-term disastrous consequences. But basically, this is a, a return to the pre-financial crisis, Freddie and Fannie, that were disasters, complete and utter unequivocal disasters. I mean, the idea, if you told me in 2008-9 that we would be have a Republican Congress and a Republican president, and 10 years later we would still have Freddie and Fannie, I would have said, you're nuts. I mean, even Republicans can't be that bad. Even Democrats talked about doing away with Freddie and Fannie and breaking them up and truly privatizing, taking away government guarantee. But nothing's happened. It truly is shocking. And it's shocking now that this is the best a Trump administration can come up with is going back to the pre-2007, 2008 Freddie and Fannie, which were corrupt, horrific, disastrous, but really corrupt, you know, fraudulent entities. And that's what we want to go back to. And, and responsible to, to a large extent for the financial crisis. Um, can England still trade with Europe with a no-deal Brexit? Any other comments on Brexit? Sure, what England should do is have a no-deal Brexit, lower tariffs to zero, and trade with everybody. Europe, and then Europe will have to decide how much tariffs they want to put on British goods. But the UK doesn't have to have tariffs with anybody. They should go back to the to the post-corn law policies of the late 19th century, where basically uh, the UK has no tariffs with anybody. And that would solve all their problems. And it would reinvigorate the UK economy. It would create the United Kingdom as this central hub of trade. Uh, it, would, it would give an example to the world. It would, it would tell Trump, it would be the counter-Trump to the world economy, and I think everybody would be net beneficiaries of that. All right, I'm, uh, I'm going to call that a day. I think we did about an hour. I, I really appreciate it. Um, again, I'm, I'm broadcasting from um, Buenos Aires. I'm hoping the next few days I'll be able to broadcast from uh, Santiago, from, uh, from Chile. Uh, hopefully the internet connection there will be good enough uh, to be able to do that. And uh, following that, hopefully we will, I'll be able to do it from Brazil as well. So I'm hoping in the next few days we will have more broadcast and cover, um, cover more topics. So, uh, uh, you know, uh, thank you all for participating. I see we've got a, a really large live audience, relatively large live audience in, on YouTube. So thank you all for joining. And thank you for those of you, who are, you know, this has been one of the best Super Chat sessions ever in terms of, uh, in terms of money, primarily because of, it definitely has been because of Brian, but also uh, some others have participated in a very, very, um, you know, a generous way. So thank you for the support, and I will continue doing these shows, continue fighting the good fight. And uh, those of you who want to support other than by Super Chat, you can do so on my website, youronbrookshow.com slash support. All right. 
I uh, hope to see some of you at the debates uh, in the week after next uh, in University of Maryland, University of Texas in Austin, and University of Colorado, Denver. See you all then, and hopefully we'll have a show in the next few days. It all depends on the internet, on the hotels that I stay at. All right. Bye, everybody. Have a great day.